0: Welcome to the Cuban Family Roots Podcast, a monthly podcast dedicated to discussing Cuban history and ancestral roots. I'm your host, Aileen Vega, podcasting from Woodbridge, New Jersey. As a genealogy enthusiast, I created the Cuban Family Roots Podcast to help others in their genealogical journey. I conduct interviews with Cuban researchers and geneticists authors and those with knowledge and expertise in Cuban history and genealogical research. I'm committed to conducting interviews that will point to genealogical information and resources to lead family historians in the right path to finding their family roots. From 1492, when Columbus claimed the island for Spaniards to present-day Cuban, our history has been rich and traumatic. Now our family history is slowly vanishing due to archival despair. Cubans inside and outside the island yearn to capture, learn our past, our origins, and our ancestral roots. Knowledge of our history is the key to keeping our Cuban family roots alive. I hope you enjoy listening to each episode as much as I enjoy producing them. The Cuban Family Roots podcast can be heard on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can support us by simply listening and engaging. Thank you for listening to another episode of the cuban family roots podcast i'm your host aileen vega podcasting from woodbridge new jersey today chris will discuss the discoveries he made in his journey to rescue our country's forgotten spanish heritage in his journey he discovered cuban fishermen on the gulf coast who fished the waters alongside their indian fishing partners known as the spanish indians and some free black slaves. Christian was inspired to and began to investigate the lives of these fishermen and their influence in the region. From the Tampa Bay down to the condominium developments at Punta Raza, several Spanish and Cuban fishermen settled in that region establishing fishing camps called ranchos. Through the interview he tells us how many of these people intermingled and formed families which is an interesting observation because it may explain why some Cubans have indigenous DNA, aside from what we know, the Taino. So we'll be right back after these messages.
1: Yep, so Cuban fishermen who fished the Gulf Coast waters of Florida. So, they, they, so by the mid-1700s, Havana was already, you know, going through a period of economic prosperity and as the population of the city was going up um since havana was very much close to the coast a lot of people used to consume seafood and still do the, to this day although it, today nowadays in cuba it's very complicated but and it, and havana in its time used to consume a lot of seafood so what does that have to do with florida well during the from the mid 1700s to the early 1800s a lot of the fish that perhaps Cubans used to eat was actually grown or actually was was caught here in Florida. And so beginning in the mid-1700s, a lot of fishermen from Cuba started going seasonally to the Gulf Coast of Florida because the, the, the waterways were not as extensively fished like in Cuba they were. So a lot of them started to form what they called these little fishing ranchos or fishing camps around around a, a large region that extends from the San Carlos Bay today in s- southwest Florida all the way up to what's St. Petersburg in the Tampa Bay area. So mm-hmm. they all formed these little fishing camps where they would go for four to six months out of the year. There they would, they would set up a camp and then they would spend their whole time, you know, catching fish. I mean, they caught a variety of fish like pompano, mullet, redfish, grouper, pigfish, sea trout. Then once they caught it, they used to dry them in the sun, preserve them in barrels full of natural salt that they got from que Sal in the Bahamas. And then they and then when they returned to Cuba in like January or February, just in time for Lenten season, they brought that fish back with them and sold it in Havana. So. And originally, they were just like a seasonal operation. I mean, they, they weren't there all times of the year. But over time, it looks like they started to absorb a lot of like the local in Indian peoples that lived in Florida. So like they learned to become better fishermen through the calusa that they encountered in the area. I mean, because those people, you know, the calusa were much more familiar with the waterways. And, and what they did is that they used to fish with nets, with a special type of net. So they Mm -hmm. taught the fishermen that, you know what, hook and line is not necessarily very effective here, you know, so try with, with a net. And they did that and they became better fishermen. They caught more fish. They used to catch thousands of pounds of fish and they would take it all back to Cuba with them. And then eventually as more, you know, Muscogee Indians from Georgia, Alabama and North Florida, Today, those Indians are called Seminoles. When they started coming down to the Gulf Coast and they started settling there, a lot of those Seminoles started working as like fishermen and deckhands w- with these rancheros. So they actually started working together. And initially, when the the fishermen used to go back to Cuba, a lot of the Seminole Indians started going back with them. And a lot of them ended up being baptized as Christians in the Church of Nuestra Señora de Regla in Cuba. In fact, a lot of these fishermen from Cuba were from Regla, and Regla has a long association with fishing and fishermen. And it wasn't just Cuban fishermen that came to the coast. It was also fishermen from Spain that came to the coast. And And um, I thought I might as well give you some examples of, the, of some of these people and what their names were and, and the impact that they left in the area. So... Here in uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida, we have an island called Usepa Island. And Usepa Island today is like an exclusive island that you have to be like a member of the club to go there. It's it's it has a long it's it's very hard to access unless you know somebody who goes there, or, or if you go on like a tour to the mm-hmm. island. But if you were to go back hundreds of years ago to around the year 1784. That island was actually just the site of a fishing rancho owned by a, a Reglano fisherman named Jose Maria Caldas. Or Caldez is how they write it, but I suspect that his probably his original last name was Caldas or some variation of that. And he was from Regla, and that rancho on the island employed a lot of Seminole Indian and Cuban fishermen to run his operations. And he was described as being this, like, pleasant, white-haired Spaniard. That's what they used to call him. That's like what the old American history logs all say about him, that they described him as being this very pleasant, you know, white-haired Spanish person. <laughs> but he was actually Cuban. And for a long time, a lot of Cubans were seen as Spaniards because they were under the control of the Spanish Empire. And so it, it wasn't just him. I mean, he also had another one, another rancho on an island called Cayo Pelau. And there he, he also worked with another fisherman who lived on that on that Island. And he's got a very funny name, but his name was Pedro Pompon and everybody called him Perico Pompon. That's what they called him. He had a really Mm -hmm. funny name. Yep. Those are two examples of people who lived in around that vicinity. And so if we were to actually go closer to the North of that, so closer closer to the Tampa Bay area and Sarasota, there was another Cuban fisherman named Antonio Maximo Hernandez. And he had a fishing rancho, right at the very tip of the Pinellas Point Peninsula of, of what's today St. Petersburg. He operated in the 1840s, but it only lasted for a few years until 1848 when a hurricane destroyed it completely. And he he went back to Cuba. He never. I don't believe he ever came back. I mean, I'm not sure if he ever came back or not, but th- that little area where his rancho was is today called Maximo Point, and it's named after him.
0: Very Interesting. Have you, have you had a chance to visit that area?
1: I haven't gone to the Sarasota area, but I did visit a few of the islands or a few of the places where some of these rancheros were. So, like for example, in Estero, Estero is a part of Southwest Florida because it's right on the coast. And so that, I believe if you go to the house, you can see like a remnant of an old Spanish pot or something that they did like so many years ago that verifies their presence on that island so at one point before that house was even existing that what you used to see on that little coast was all these palmetto thatched huts typical of what and i don't know if you've ever seen what these thatched huts look like but in cuba we have something similar called a boyo.
0: right i've seen them yeah i've seen them so, in cuba
1: and another thing that they used to do was i believe they also used to collect shark liver oil and mullet roe and they would they would use that for trade. So that was some they used to be very good traders and fishermen, all of them. <laughs> and so if, if we were to go further, you would see that um on an island called Terracea Island, there was a Spanish immigrant named Miguel Guerrero. He actually built a fishing rancho on an area called Boots Point around 1848. And there he started introducing a, a different approach to fishing. So rather than just catching all the fish with nets and then storing them in barrels full of salt all the time. Like most of his competitors, what he started to do was he had something like a watertight compartment on the hull of his boat. And there he would keep the fish alive. And then, and then whenever he would go back to Cuba, he used to go to Cuba much more frequently than his competitors. But whenever he went back to Cuba, he would keep them alive until they were in Cuba. And then he would sell them fresh
0: was there any animosity between the indians and and the um the spaniards or the cubans
1: throughout that whole period they didn't really have that many problems because the indians were just naturally good at the fishing they learned from each other they they worked together and and as you know as many of the fishermen began to have children with seminal women you know a lot of them started to see each other as like one unit so instead what happened was they a creolized culture form between the two of them. There really wasn't that much animosity, really. There, if if there were, it's the typical animosity that you have between, you know, two people that don't see eye to eye, but there weren't, like, strong, intense problems between them. There wasn't, like, a lot of infighting. Like, it, it's not like what happened with uh, Calusa and Pedro Menendez de Aviles in, like, the 1500s. It's not, not like that. It's completely right. different. Here's another thing that you may not know a lot of them also traded with fugitive slaves that were escaping the American slave states. So a lot of slaves that were escaping the United States up north actually came to the Gulf and formed colonies. And there they started actually trading with these fishermen. And in return, the Spanish authorities from Cuba would give them muskets and also give them protection. So they all traded together. The ranchero that I mentioned to you, Jose Maria Cardas, you know, his rancho on Usepa Island, he actually had a a black freedman from of Congolese origin that was the son of one of his slaves, and he freed her or he freed him in 1836 after he was baptized in Regla. So, a lot of like even like freed slaves from the Spanish colonies came to the, came to these little settlements and were treated like just another fish.
0: Those are the kinds of things that we don't really you know hear about often.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and the reason that a lot of this was discovered was because there was a Vanderbilt University project where they went to the church called Nuestra Señora de Regla and they digitized a lot of records and while there they found a lot of baptismal and marriage records of of like seminal Indians with Spaniards and children born in islands here in Florida, given, you know, Spanish names and and they said, "Oh, that the mother was was you know of Indian ancestry. The father was from Asturias or something, or the father was Cuban." And so, in that church, sit some baptismal records of you know mixed children that were born in Florida that just came back with the fishermen to Regla during Lenten season. There was like a Cuban American culture that had formed in Florida prior to Florida becoming you know, an American territory and and it still lasted into the early years of of Florida becoming an American territory. So when when the Adams Oneice Treaty, you know, took effect in 1821, that's when things started to get a little bit more difficult, but they still continued operating into the eighteen thirties and forties, although it became much more difficult. This is where it starts to get more complicated. American authorities started discovering that they weren't so much, you know, threatened by the cuban fishermen i mean they, they, they told the, the cuban fishermen to, to leave but they started seeing that a lot of them a lot of these like seminal indians many of whom were like mixed their father was like a cuban fisherman and their mother was a seminal woman that didn't seem to phase them and a lot of them were repatriated to other parts of the united states and so why do i say that this is an interesting part of history because a lot of like Native peoples of seminal ancestry may very well have Cuban ancestry in them just by association. And they don't even know it.
0: That is a very
1: interesting thing. Yeah. And so a few of them still survived. But, like, for example, when a U.S. customs officer was killed on Nusepa Island in 1836, a lot of these fishermen, their families actually met up with a American rachero, actually. His name was William Bunce. And so William Bunce had his own rancho that sold fish to Cuba, but he was American. So he wasn't Hispanic or anything, but he employed a lot of like these Cuban fishermen and their mixed children, their seminal wives they, and seminal helpers. They help, And he also employed a lot of fugitive slaves, too. So he became, you know, the, the place that they ran to. So at first they went to his first rancho that was on Passage Key. But then afterwards, you know, because William Bunce started attracting the negative attention of the government, he decided to move his operation further north to Mullet Key. But eventually in 1840, some military authorities from Fort Brook caught up to him and they burned his rancho to the ground and they sent all of his, like, seminal Indian and or, and fugitive slaves. They, they took him off his property and, and then you can probably assume what happened after that. The good news is, however, after the Civil War a lot of the um, Cuban fishermen started to come back. Actually, a new generation of them started to come to the area. So one such interesting character was, you know, a Canary Islander immigrant named Toribio Padilla and his Mexican wife. And they built another rancho on an island called Cayo Costa. That's on the Gulf Coast that faces the Gulf of Mexico there. They employed a lot of these Spanish and Cuban fishermen. Mm -hmm. And another fisherman that was Spanish named Jose Sega, built another one up for a bit further south. And they started competing together with a lot of, like, American fishermen that had, formed, that had formed businesses around the area. Nevertheless, and by the 1898, you know, when Cuba became a sovereign country, a lot of them stopped coming to the area, and after, after that, a lot of them just disappeared. But you can really see that their influence in a lot of the names of the places around South Florida. For example... The island I told you about, Usepa Island, for example, right? Th- that that name Usepa doesn't make any sense. That's because it's it's like a corruption of the name of Jose Maria Cadas' boat. The boat's name was Josefa. It was Josefa, oh. and it looks like probably some some American read that, didn't know how to pronounce it, and just said Usepa, you know, and that's it. And then you Usepa. can also see influences of from the Cubans if you see some of the islands around here. In southwest Florida, there's an island called Regla Island. You can obviously guess where that comes from. And
0: Absolutely.
1: then you have another island called Mondongo Island. Guts, you know, so so probably... You know, I, I, like your yeah. guts are falling out. They probably were using it to refer to fish intestines or fish guts, probably, but right. it's still there.
0: Hmm.
1: And the, the truth is, a lot of these fishermen, I, I forgot to mention this to you, when... That whole Indian removal policies happened. A lot of these Cuban fishermen suffered. You know, a lot of them had families. So another Cuban fisherman who actually lived around the Sarasota area, who had a rancho, his name was Felipe Bermudez. Now, he, according to historical record, he lost like two wives and five children to the whole Indian removal policies. So a lot of them... Some of the fishermen went with their families to the reservations and some stayed, you know, but it's a it's a sad story at the same time because, you know, they weren't allowed to stay there. You know, a few of the rancheros did manage to survive, like um, Miguel Guerrero, for example, like I mentioned to you, he actually stayed legitimate. He didn't have much problem with the American authorities. And I believe uh, some of them managed to survive. But it wasn't the same like it used to be. It's part of the Cuban American story in this country, you know, and I'm I'm a believer in telling the good, the bad and the ugly of history. I don't think you can always limit it to the good, the bad, or the ugly.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. And and oftentimes, you know, when when we think of like, you know, Cubans or Indians or Africans, we always hear about the ugly
1: more than Than the good. And you're right. And the problem is, you can't really look back on history with that limited mindset because, yes, the Spanish were very cruel to the Indians. I mean, I don't think any of the Europeans that came to the Americas were benevolent all the time. (laughs) I think, you know, if you were to look back to the Dutch, the British, the French, they are all cruel. Every single one of them were cruel. And so, but also, if you were to go back in time, you would see people like Junipero Serra or Bartolomé de la Casa, people who advocated for a more benevolent approach to the Indians. And so the reason I wanted to tell this story was because I thought it was fascinating to see that before Key West and before Ybor City, you know, they were Cubans who actually lived around, what's today, Florida and Florida. Has that connection with Cuba, and I think that if we really want to talk about the connection between Florida and Cuba, this is part of the story. And yeah, and and hopefully, you know, one day we'll find a story of a of a Seminole Indian who has a Cuban ancestor who used to fish these parts.
0: Yeah, hopefully, somebody will, you know, do some DNA, um, you know, project or something on those, and that'll be uncovered because that'll be an interesting story. Definitely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Definitely to show how long Cubans have been here in America. Probably right. longer than most people think. Christian, thank you so much for uh, enlightening us with all this information that we would have we would have never known. Thank you so much.
1: Yep, and you can read a little bit about that on my blog. I just recently posted some new posts there, and this is one of them, and I am actually working on the first three episodes of my podcast, which should be coming out soon.
0: Oh, speaking of your podcast, can you give us some information about the name of your your podcast, where we can find you?
1: So the name of my podcast will be Unveiling Spanish America Storytime. And I'm going to put a link to all the episodes on my blog. And I'm going to find a way to just promote it a little bit more because I think... Telling a lot of these stories in an audiovisual form will be better because just reading it all the time, I mean, it may not stick with you. I think a lot of people can absorb the history and the information more if they were just to like feel it and see it. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you so much again for um, enlightening us. With- Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and like to help support the Cuban Family Roots podcast, please share it with others, post it on your social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Cuban Family Roots or on Twitter at Cuban Family Roots Podcast or Facebook at Cuban Family Roots Podcast. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.